Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. This is episode number 87 and I am Scott Gardner and I am joined this episode once again by the ever awesome Paul Spataro. How's it going, Paul? It's going great, Scott. How you doing? I'm doing good, buddy. Well, as we were just saying uh, before we were getting started, I've been a slacker because you have been itching to do more more shows and I've been like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whenever, whenever, when I get to it, when I get to it. Well, I'm finally getting to it. So here you go, a new episode of uh, of Back to the Bins, and uh, I'm gonna let you run first on this one. I should remember the book that you said you were bringing to this because you, uh, I, I don't think that it made the last show that we did, but I remember we discussed the books that we were going to be co- bringing to the uh, episode because we were supposed to cover these books last episode, and then we just went on that that awesome. I don't know what you would call it, rant, tear, discussion, whatever, and and that ended up becoming what the show was. So th- these are the actual books that we were <laughs> intending to do the last time around. But now I have gone and forgotten what book you were bringing to the table. So yeah, I guess we could have covered these then, but we would have gone on for four hours instead of uh, <laughs> the only two and a half hours that we went on for. But uh, yeah, I picked Giant Size Avengers number three, and hopefully I'll. Uh, be able to be comprehensive about this because I actually prepped it for uh, whatever two months ago when we recorded last. Uh, but this is cover dated February of 1975. It's a double sized issue with a 50 cent cover price. 68 big pages right on the cover. It's uh, Kang War 2 Part 2 What Time Hath Put Asunder. And on the cover, which I am very fond of this cover, it's got a shot of Thor, the Vision, and Iron Man flying through dates in time and coming around and it's a little deceptive because vision says thor iron man it is fated that in this nameless place one of us three shall die which is a little deceptive because this picks up from avengers 132 where in at least in theory iron man died that's who he's talking about so it's already happened before this issue began but again this picks up from avengers 132 where Kang the Conqueror has plucked the Legion of the Unliving, deceased characters from time, into limbo to battle the Avengers. The Legion of the Unliving consists of Wonder Man, who at the time was dead and hadn't appeared since Avengers number 9, the original Human Torch, the original Baron Zemo, Frankenstein's Monster, the Ghost of the Flying Dutchman, who was a Silver Surfer villain, and Midnight Sun, who was a Shang-Chi villain. The Avengers are in limbo, and they've already had an initial combat with them in that issue 132. Mantis comes across the Vision, who was injured in a battle with the Ghost. He's delirious, and he calls her Wanda. And at the time, there was a big love triangle going on, or actually a four-sided thing, because there was also the Swordsman uh, was in love with Mantis. Mantis and Wanda were both in love with the Vision, and the Vision was in love with Wanda. He's tending to, or she tends to him, and she's attacked by Midnight, she, and she defeats him in a martial arts combat. When she returns her attention to the Vision, he's gone, and he has, he's been carried off by the Frankenstein monster. Hawkeye sees the Vision being carried off and believes that it's time to rally for a last stand. Kang is with Wonder Man and the Torch and is securing their aid with the threat of returning them to death. The Human Torch thinks to himself how he has no willpower to resist, which kind of explains why they're doing Kang's bidding, when, at least in theory, the Human Torch is a hero. 
Then we cut to Thor, who's in pursuit of Frankenstein's monster and comes across a lifeless Iron Man. Again, Iron Man was basically killed in battle with the Human Torch in the previous issue. We cut to Avengers Mansion, where there's a star shining brightly overhead, which may just herald the coming of the Celestial Madonna, which uh, eventually turns out to be Mantis. At the mansion, Jarvis is speaking to the police, who report that Libra, who is Mantis's father, has escaped. Jarvis goes to report this to the Scarlet Witch, who's been working with Agatha Harkness to harness her powers. When he attempts to speak to, to her through a door, he hears a voice which sounds like someone not human warning him to get away. We come back to Limbo, where the Torch and Wonder Man come across Frankenstein. Wonder Man starts to get himself ready to tear the vision into pieces when the Frankenstein monster stops him, saying, you will not hurt him, and Wonder Man backs down. The Torch starts to examine the vision and sees something that he describes as beyond belief. Then we cut to Zemo and Kang. Zemo is ranting, and it's getting on Kang's nerves. Kang tells him to shut up or else, and directs him to return to Amortis' throne room. Kang is then confronted by Thor, and as they start to battle, Wonder Man attacks Thor as well. Despite this, Thor gets the upper hand, and Wonder Man brings down a wall to separate them so that they can escape. Hawkeye comes to Amortis' throne room, where Amortis and Ramatut are being held captive in stasis tubes. As he considers freeing them, he's confronted by Zemo. He has a short battle, and Zemo sprays Hawkeye with adhesive X, gluing him to the ground. Zemo starts to rant about having to go through life as a faceless man, and Amortis talks to him and says that he might be able to help him since he's a master of time and can prevent the accident that glued the mask to his face in the first place. We cut back to the Frankenstein monster and the Torch, who are with the Vision. The Torch indicates that the Vision's body is his own. We go back to the throne room again, where Hawkeye is still glued to the ground, but he's attempting to line up an arrow using his teeth to pull the bowstring, while Zemo continues to talk to Immortus. We go back to Kang and Wonder Man. Thor catches up with them, and Frank, them and Frankenstein and the Torch arrive at the same time. Vision comes to and indicates that the torch has saved him, although his left arm is only hanging on by a thread. We cut back to the throne room. Hawkeye releases his arrow, which ricochets and releases Amortis. Now keep in mind, he's doing this with his, with his mouth. Uh, when, when Amortis is released, he turns Zemo into a blob of protoplasm, saying that he's basically releasing him from his uh, torture. Uh, in the meanwhile, Vision and Wonder Man start to fight, and the Vision takes a pounding before gaining the upper hand. Kang and Thor are battling as well, and as Thor gains the upper hand, Kang leaves into the time stream, which basically ends the battle for the issue. Discussions occur involving the Vision and the Torch. Thor asks how they could be the same android body, but they don't even know. They, mater they all materialize in the throne room where Immortus restores everyone, including Iron Man and the Vision, to their prior condition and, re and returns the dead to where they came from. However, he allows the torch to stay and indicates that he'll send him back in time to see how he and the Vision became intertwined. He talks about how he, Ramatut, and Kang are the same person, and the quest continues in issue 133. The issue also contains a letters page, and it reprints Avengers number 2, which is the appearance of the Space Phantom, so it has a lot to do with Limbo. And that's basically our issue. <laughs> now, do you, do you remember this one, Scott, or... Uh, in broad strokes, I do. Um, a while ago, um, 
it's probably got to be a couple of years ago now because I know it was before I moved here to Florida. I was on a read through of the Avengers because I was a I was an Avengers fan when I was a kid, but I was one of those like pick and choose you know Avengers fans. You know I would I would follow you know particular creators or particular runs. I, you know I was very fond of like the John Byrne run, the George, the original George Perez run, that that sort of thing. But I hadn't really ever read the oldest stuff, you know, the original stuff beyond reprints of like, uh, you know, Avengers number one, how the team was formed or Avengers number four, you know, how cap joined the team, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So I, I went on a read through and, uh, I know I read through that, that era. So I remember bits and pieces of that particular story. Um, the two things that, that really stood out was, were, um, you know, the thing with the human torch, and uh, and then I, of course I remember the thing with Mantis because that was a character I hated. I really <laughs> could not stand that whole thing with her and the swordsman, and it has to have had one of the goofiest resolutions ever in comics, where she ended up marrying a tree or something and went yeah, off he, into sp- he, yeah. It was he becomes r- intertwined with I'm trying to remember I think they called it the Kawadi or something like that yeah yeah and he basically becomes this living plant with his own essence in there and he marries her. Uh, there was so much going on in this issue. It was, it was so dense, and I hope my uh, recap of it you know, did it justice because there's so much that comes from earlier issues into this one, and then it branches off leaving, leading you to so much more. And that's one of the things I love about the Silver Age and the Bronze Age issues, mm-hmm. especially more the Bronze Age than the Silver, but uh, issues like this where it reads really well by itself but it's still so intertwined with so much else that's going on that there's this whole tapestry with the prior issues and the subsequent issues. And it basically you know, gives you the choice. If you want to get more deeply into it, you can. Or if you just want to read this issue for its own benefit, you can do that as well. And that's something I think they've lost over time. They don't really don't do that anymore. Absolutely. Yeah. An issue like that, um, you know, like you, you read a, an issue of, say, like Spider-Man from that era, and it definitely gives you a sense that there's a rich history here. But what I like about a story like the one that you just reviewed is, uh, or synopsized rather, is that it's not so much that there's a history, is that there's a mythology here. You know, I mean, there's there's branches going off all over the place. So you kind of have your pick of which thread you want to follow and, and discover a whole new thing. The the part of that I can't believe that I have completely forgotten was that Frankenstein's monster was in there because I'm a huge Marvel Frankenstein monster fan and have and been on a quest for a long time to collect every appearance. And I don't have that particular book. I know I've read it. I think I read it in a reprint or something, but I, I totally don't remember him being in that story. So I, how, how involved is he really? I mean, does he have much of a, of a part to play in that story? And well, does he look like how he would look later when they brought him back? He, he definitely looks exactly as he did in the uh, Front Monster of Frankenstein series. Hmm. And I was, when I was looking into this one, I saw a note, and I don't have it in front of me. I apologize. Uh, that I can't be more exact, but I think they said that this appearance takes place, I'm tempted to say, after issue five of his series. Oh, so and, his series was out at the time then? Yes. Oh. Okay. Uh, from from a continuity point of view, it takes place at that point, which I think, if I, I it's been so long since I read any of his series, but if I remember right, the first few issues take place 
you know, in the 1800s when right, the monster yes. was supposed to be created, and then they bring him into modern times. That's correct, yeah. And I think that this story may take place right in between, just before he disappeared from the, you know, the earlier issues and came to modern time. So it fits into the continuity, which is, again, I, that's one of the things I love about these type of stories. I'm trying to Did remember I, uh, how that happened. He ended up frozen in a block of ice, much like Captain America, but I can't remember the specifics now of of how that how that ended up happening. Mm-hmm. I yeah, I'm not certain either. But again, and I've talked about this before, this is one of the things. This was the type of issue. This was early on in my collecting. Uh, I would say, you know, within, what is it, 75? So it's probably about two years after I started, a year and a half after I started. But it was the kind of thing where you'd read it and you'd see, okay, who's this character, you know, the ghost of the Flying Dutchman? What issues was he in? Let me let me see if I could pick up those. Who's this character, Midnight? Who's, you know, let me see this Frankenstein monster series. Uh, you know, what what was the history on the original Human Torch? It, it It brings all these questions to mind, and that's just on the periphery of it because there's so much else that's going on with, you know, the subplot with the Scarlet Witch and the subplot, even though it's not <laughs> not one of the best ones, but with the whole Celestial Madonna thing. Uh, there, there's just so much going on, and it makes you want to read more. And they had this storyline at this point where uh, this Kang story and the story with Libra had been going on probably for over a year. Uh, the previous issue of Giant Size Avengers number two also had a battle with Kang. Uh, and then in issue four, Kang is back again, and that's when the Celestial Madonna gets married and all of that. And then we go into another battle with Kang where they go back in time, uh, and they have this crossover with the Two-Gun Kid, Rawhide Kid, Kid Colt. I love that story. Yeah. And, and, and it, it, it basically ends, at least at that time, with Kang, you know, fighting Thor in this epic battle where they're both, you know, totally letting loose with all their power and Kang is just ripped to shreds and, you know, spread across the time stream. Right. And, and at that time, the theory is that he's dead. But, you know, of course, a time traveler, I guess, always comes back. That was a but, Perez illustrated issue, wasn't yes, it? it was. yeah. Yes, yeah, it was. Yes, it was. That yeah. was, you know, it, it went through the point when the Beast joined uh, right. the Avengers. And, you know, then there was the whole thing where they, when they went to come back and Hawkeye had become uh, buddies with the two gun kids. So he ends up staying in the West to, you know, go and explore and, and seek out adventure over there. I love so, that stuff. Because eventually yeah. they would come to modern day, which at the time was the, was the mid-70s, mid to late 70s. And I remember this cool story where uh, Hawkeye took uh, Two Gun Kid to a dude ranch. <laughs> I forget what they go there for, but they end up going to a dude ranch because dude ranches were were a popular thing at the time. And uh, I just got a kick out of that story. Well, I do remember going to a dude ranch around that time, so I can <laughs> I can verify that. Now, whatever yeah. happened with Two Gun? Did he he ended up having to go back to his own time, didn't he? He did go back. And then I think he came back again mm-hmm. uh, at some point in the West Coast Avengers. I know he was in one of the runs. I'm not sure if it was Dan Slott's or whose exactly, but he was in one of the runs of She-Hulk. He was back living in the modern day again. And I'm okay, not sure that how that happened. But I, 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 So he's kind of gone back and forth, if I'm not mistaken. I'm well, not guess- sure what his current disposition is. It's probably not too long after this point that, the, or it may be around this point, that they stopped producing new 
issues of the Western series that they were making. Right. And, yeah. you know, the, for, for a short, I don't even know how long, but for a period, they went into just reprints, and then they ceased production on them altogether. So from a continuity point of view, it probably was easy for them to just do whatever they wanted with the characters at that time. There was another subplot that was going on for years about uh, the Vision panicking uh, anytime he was put into a claustrophobic situation. And they tied that in with him having been the original Human Torch. And there was the part where they tried to, uh, to, to control him by uh, basically cementing him into a giant block. And that that, they explained that away with that the Vision now had claustrophobia. Now, I think they have since retconned it that they are not the same body, uh, and that's why they're able to exist at the same time. I've but, lost mean, count on that whole thing because it, it was retconned and then re-retconned and then retconned again. So it's so many points where I can no longer keep it straight. Um, I remember that it was finally supposedly, and I say this in air quotes, definitively explained in uh, Avengers Forever, but now for the life of me, I can't remember what that... I want to say that that explanation was that somebody, and I can't remember who it was, one of the time travelers basically took the original Human Torch and split him in two, you know, like, uh, uh, I don't know, chronally, I guess would be the term, to -hmm. where there was actually... One, you know, there were two different human torch. Basically, they did like the, you know, the the enemy within Captain Kirk thing, you know, where they <laughs> split him in two, and there was one that that remained in the past and was the human torch that died and was buried, and then there was one that did become the Vision. So that basically both origin stories that we've heard over time, both of them are true. That that was the last one I can remember. I think that's how that went down. I have no idea if that story is still in continuity or not. Because I, I think, um, isn't it Mark Wade that wrote that Avengers Forever? I think it was Busiek. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you're right. Um, I think he was trying to play peacemaker with that, you know, because it, it, like I say, the story had been retconned so many times. I think that he was trying to to be faithful to all different versions, but settle the thing once and for all. And so you kind of, kind of got that resolution that is either really cool or really kind of lame, depending on how you look at the situation, you know, it's the problem with those kind of things is they just get so convoluted that it becomes hard to kind of keep track of what they're saying. Uh, but I guess it's just the nature of the beast when you're going to try and come up with new concepts you know, uh, and I, I hate to keep hopping on this, but you know, when you have five, six, seven hundred issues of a book, and you're always trying to come up with new ideas, sometimes those ideas aren't going to blend together well. And if you come up with guys like Mark Wade and uh, Kurt Busiek and guys like that who have a, an ability to make those stories blend together, you know, it does become more complex. But you know, they they at least come up with explanations for how it happened. Absolutely. There were two emotional points in this one, uh, one of which I thought was really good and one of which I didn't like so much. Uh, At the beginning, when Mantis uh, is caring for the Vision and he calls her Wanda and she just kind of goes along with it because she's, you know, so concerned about him and she doesn't want to get him upset. uh, I thought that really played well because she's in love with him and you could see, like, you can almost see that it's causing her pain that he calls out for Wanda because she's looking for the person 
you know, she's looking to be the person in his life. And I really liked the way that played. But I really didn't like the way they did played with the Iron Man death. Uh, you know, at least in, in theory, they're, they're killing him off. And they, it was almost like a, an anticlimactic nothing event. <laughs> and then they just brought him back and, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, here he is. Uh, and I, I thought that was poorly done. Has uh, Iron I, Man died more in the Avengers than any other, any other place? Because it uh, seems like he's died a number of times in the Avengers title, if I'm not well, mistaken. Well, there was just once. There was the time when he was, uh, when, when they brought back the teenage uh, right. to kill himself. Right. Uh, I'm trying to think of any other times. I know the there's another head. one, and I can't think. Yeah, I, I, now that I say that, I, I've got nothing to back it up, but I'm, I'm almost positive that there's at least one other one. I want to say it's, it's in the thing with, uh, it, it's either in the story or right around the same time frame as that story with the, the dude that mutated into a god, Karnak, or whatever the hell his name oh, was. Korvac, that was it, yeah. But he killed, like, everyone. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> that's true. And then he, he brought them back, like, kind of as his last thing before he uh, he died off. But then I think eventually they revived him as well. But Oh, know, did he come he, back? I think they did at some point. I know there was a, uh, a, a what-if story that what if he had won or something to that effect. But I don't, I can't, off the top of my head, I can't remember if I've ever read that story or not. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, my... My history becomes a little bit more spotty once we get to about the mid to late eighties. Right, <laughs> that's where I start to lose some of my, uh, you know, my my continuity. So Your geek cred, <laughs> I guess I don't know. That. You know what? I'll let you guys judge my Greek my geek cred. Uh, let's see what else I got on this one. Oh, I, I wanted just a point of interest is uh, Wonder Man hadn't appeared since issue nine, and they brought him back and and. He was not a likable character in this story. I mean, he right. basically embraced the villain role. But then they revived him, I don't know how many issues later, but it wasn't too long. Maybe, I would say, less than a year. Well, what what issue was actually concurrent with this annual? Uh, well, this, this comes out uh, right after issue 132. I want to say he came back in the... I would say in the one forty. I'm gonna get. Yeah, I was just gonna say. I'm gonna guess one four. I want to say like one forty. I'm gonna. You keep talking. I'm gonna do a little homework here because I really want to test my my brain. Because you know my my memory is literally it's a sieve. But for some reason, I have a really good memory for numbers. Well, so he, let's I'll, see. I'll give gonna, you what I have. Uh, while you looking it up, I'll give you my best memories on this. One thirty seven, I believe, is the issue where the beast joins the team. Uh, 144 and 145 were fill-in issues, so I'm going to go with 146 as being the issue where they revived him, uh, and they revived him down in New Orleans as a zombie, but then he kind of recovered from that. Right, <laughs> he got better, yeah. So I'm, that's, that's what I'm going to, I'm going to go with 146 or 147 as the revival issue, if if you can back up, if, if, while you look for I'm that. I'm going strictly by by cover images. So what I've got here is uh, Beast is on the cover of 136. But I think 136 may be a reprint story. Is 136 uh, a, a cover with him standing over Iron Man? Standing over Iron Man. I did it. As I if Iron, Iron Man is Man. dead? Yep. That's that's a reprint of Amazing Adventures okay, number 12. That's, yep, that's what I thought. And then he, he is on 137. He says, Gangway and Avenger coming through, and he's leaping over these uh, these steely ball things. 
yeah, that was kind of a weird uh, villain in that issue because it was uh, the stranger, but it really turned out to be the toad disguised as the stranger. <laughs> Jesus, how does that work? Yeah, I, it was a strange. It was it was a little bit of a strange story, no pun intended. Uh, but that's I think it the the motivation was that uh, Toad was in love with Wanda, and I, I don't even remember where where it went exactly. But that was where he joined the team. Uh, and like I said, I do remember one forty four and one forty five. I think were fill in issues. Then they had the whole brand uh, corporation. Thing which actually came from Amazing right. Adventures, uh, and that, that all ties in. Steve Englehart wrote that run of Amazing Adventures with the Beast, and he was writing the Avengers at this point. Right. So he brought in his character, and he brought in the subplots that he had worked on at that time. That's when they brought in Patsy Walker to be the Hellcat. Right. This is a damn good era of Avengers right here because this is where uh, Vision went inside. Um, whatever the hell he was called at the time, Yellow Jacket, but Yellow, Jacket, Yellow Jacket was Jacket huge. Um, which was which was uh, an homage to issue 94 when, uh, when right. uh, Hank Man. Pym shrunk down and went into yeah. the vision. Yeah, I love that story because it, yeah. it had that gorgeous Neil Adams art. That, uh, that yeah. was a great issue. Well, that's part of the uh, Kree-Skrull War, that, that run. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was 141. Uh, that was 139 and 140, and oh, 141 okay. was uh, where they battled the Squadron Sinister, which was really good. 142 is, uh, I don't know if it's part of that Kang story we were talking about or not, but it has a cover that's, uh, it has the Avenger, it has Hawkeye, Thor, Iron Man, who looks really goofy because he has a nose. Oh yeah, I love the nose era. <laughs> and uh, you got Moon Dragon, who I, I never could stand. And they're facing off with, uh, let's see here, we got Two-Gun Kid, Rawhide Kid, Ghost Rider, and I don't know who the hell that other guy is. There's one other Western character, and they're facing off in the streets. That's got to be that story, but I thought that story lasted for more than one issue. It does. It definitely is. Yeah, that can't be the same story. Then it's got to be another different one, I guess. But, uh, man, I'm usually really good on the Western guys. I can't think of who, let's see, we got... Who did Marvel have for Western? They had Two Gun Kid. I'm I'm looking to punch it up Rawhide while you're talking kid. about, it so I can look at it. Ghost. You were on 142. Yeah, was it was the guy's name Ghost Rider? The one that was like the he was all white. Was that his name? He was originally the Ghost Rider, but at this point they had the Johnny Blaze Ghost Rider. So when he came back, they renamed him Knight Rider. Knight Rider, that was it. Yeah. And uh, okay, yeah, that's a Gil Kane cover. I'm looking at that. You got. Rawhide Kid, Kid Colt, Knight Rider, and then it's Two Gun Kid. Kid that was it. Kid Colt. Yeah, that's the one I couldn't think of. That's right. Yep. Yep. And then uh, we were both off by about 12 issues because I I looked way ahead here. It's issue 152 is the one where they're in uh, New Orleans, and uh, the chicken-headed dude is going, Rise, Wonder Man, you shall become my unliving slave. And that's I think that's the first... uh, where where he comes back as a zombie. I think you're right on that. And uh that's a Kirby cover. Oh yeah. Most definitely. I know I know your love of Kirby. You know, I was just going to say though that I really like this cover despite not being the biggest Kirby fan in the world. I actually like that cover quite a bit, but that is one freaky looking dude. Well, that's that's when they started playing with the, you know, the, I guess I don't even remember if he was in there, but I think that's related to Brother Voodoo somewhere. Yeah. 
Well, I started to call him Brother Voodoo, and then I got to think, no, I don't, I don't know what this dude's name is. He does look a lot. He looks like Brother Voodoo with a chicken head and like like lion hands, <laughs> which is one weird visual for anybody not looking at that. But yeah, that that's a great great era of uh, of Avengers. There's a lot of really good stuff in there. Yeah, that's you know sometimes I, I wonder with things like that if I'm if my memories are accurate or if I'm just being nostalgic, you know? No, I you know because I reread this not long ago, and I, a lot of these once I get up around, I'm not sure what issue. I want to say the like the high 150s, early 160s. That's where I came into Avengers as a kid, and you know my runs were very spotty because you know I was still buying them in you know in back issues, you know. So it was like catch as catch can as as far as back issues, and it wasn't until you know years later as an adult where I could you know hunt them down at comic shops that I got like entire runs and things. But uh, you know, so I had fond memories of these, and you know, there's always that that fear when you look back at something from your childhood that. You know, I loved this as a kid, and then you reread it and go, "Wow, I must have been really retarded as a kid because these things <laughs> suck." You know, but th- these Avengers stories they hold up, and I think the reason that they hold up is that, uh, you know, they're they're kind of like a great Star Trek episode. You know, where it can be the most fantastical story you've ever heard, but it's made real and and grounded by the fact that the characterization, you know, really sucks you into the story. So. You know, they might be battling some weird monster, you know, space alien or whatever, but the little character snippets of, you know, so-and-so is secretly in love with so-and-so, but, you know, that guy doesn't know that she exists. You know, and all the just crap that's going on in the background, all these drama elements and everything kind of root you to the story and, and give you that 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 human grounding that you need in order to embrace the more, you know, sometimes flat-out ridiculous uh, story elements uh, of the of the big battle, you know, because every issue's got to have a battle, you know. So yeah, a lot right. of times it was the battle stuff that, as an adult, I end up k- kind of being bored with. It's like, no, no, give me more of this this love story thing. I want to know where that's going. I don't care about them battling, you know, you know, Doctor whatever. You know, I want to see more of, you know, what's are these two going to hook up or not? You know, that sort of <laughs> thing. So it becomes like a like a soap opera. I, I give Steve Englehart a lot of credit on these. Uh... He had, you know, at least in the previous era, there was a tendency to make these characters so interchangeable where right. you know, yeah. the, the one hero's dialogue could just be easily be substituted with a different hero. And he, he gave them each, you know, at least their own personality. Mm-hmm. He didn't take it as far as they do now, as far as, you know, where you had these, you know, really, really flawed heroes, uh, you know, they would have their flaw, but their flaws would be their weakness, not necessarily uh, a personality flaw. You know, the, the, the flaw was that if, you know, Thor put down his hammer for 60 seconds, he turned back to Don Blake. But, you know, no matter what, they were always, you know, he would always be heroic. Uh, but he still managed to give each of them their own personalities. He gave them, uh, you know, certain conflicts as far as, uh, you know, whether they had... Uh, Crisis's, you know, vision with claustrophobia, or the swordsman was always wondering if he was good enough to be with this group, you know, that kind of thing, which, you know, at least at least distinguished them from each other, and, and I, I like that aspect of it, and I think some of that goes to the second generation comic writers, you know, where you had Stan Lee basically in the first generation, and he came up with the idea of giving the characters the weakness, but then 
the next group, you know, with Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway and, and Steve Englehart. And I'm, I'm sure I'm leaving off like half a dozen other great people. <laughs> uh, but they, they all took that ball and ran with it. And they, you know, took it a step further. And, and they also did a lot of that intertwining of the stories with the past continuity that we were talking about a, a, earlier. So, uh, you know, I, I, I give them a lot of credit. Well, a lot of the uh, the things that he came up with would stick to those characters for years afterwards. You know, the whole thing with uh, with Wonder Man, uh, you know, providing the the what was it? He like he gave the the vision the the he was the template for the vision or something like that. Didn't that come out of this this era? It came out of this era, and I don't remember when. It was probably from about the point when they revived him. Right. That we just discussed around issue 152, uh, that it was his brain patterns, something along those lines, that the vision's uh, mind was based on. So it wasn't, he didn't have the same brain, he didn't have the same personality, but, you know, it's almost like a genetic match. Right. So, so then, you know, from that, they went to the theory that the two of them were brothers. Right. And, but then, and then I like that angle that they were brothers, but then it also led to a lot of conflict because then you had the love triangle with Wanda. They were both in love with the same woman and, you know, which one would she choose if she chose either of them and that sort of thing. I always thought that was pretty cool. And you also had the villain, the Grim Reaper, mm-hmm. who was Simon Williams' biological brother. And he would resent the vision for even, you know, thinking of himself as Simon Williams' brother. Uh, his his whole origin came from the fact that, you know, when Simon Williams was dead, he was trying to avenge his brother, and then he was revived, and, you know, it created more conflict, which was kind of cool. I need to get back on my uh, my Avengers read-through, because from, from uh, definitely from this point forward, I have, you know, every issue right up to the end of the series, and just doing a quick scan through the covers, there's a... A whole lot of this stuff I've actually never read, so I, I need to, to get back on board with that. I never meant to stop. I just, you know, life got in I've, the way, and I, I just slacked off and, and never got back to it. But I definitely need to, because I know I made it as far as, like, issue 200, but uh, beyond that, I can't remember how far I got. So I need to, to get back into that, especially with the movie coming out. And, you know, it's I've, I've caught Avengers fever again, so... Mm. <laughs> The other thing, just my last note on this one is just uh, I really like the Dave Cockrum art in this issue. He, uh, I think he was better in this issue than he was on his run on the on the X Men. Uh, you know, he he. The biggest thing I think about him was, I see a lot of artists, at least in this era, you know, when when it came to drawing the human body, the face would always have that same oval egg shape to it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, I guess it was just standard art school. You know, you draw that oval and then you just draw the face into it. And uh, Cockrum had a way of, you know, you'd have characters who had a little bit more of an elongated face. You'd have some characters who had a rounder face. Uh, and, and it just played well. Again, you know, like I said, I don't like the interchangeable aspect of certain things. Uh, and, and I like the fact that, you know, you, you could tell the different characters apart based on how he drew them. You know, it's like uh, with a lot of artists, you could have uh, Steve Rogers and Clint Barton standing next to each other without their masks on, and I would defy you to to figure out who is who. Right. 
but you know, with Cockrum, you could tell, and and I like that. And and he also had a great storytelling way about him. Uh, you know, you could follow it. You, I mean, obviously, you want to read the dialogue, but if you didn't, you still knew exactly what was going on. Cockrum's one of those weird ones for me because, you know, you cited his X-Men stuff. Now, I've never been the biggest X-Men fan in the world anyway, but I, I look at a lot of his X-Men stuff, and I really don't like the art on that. But then you give him something different. Like, uh, I always liked his stuff on uh, Legion of Superheroes. I always thought mm-hmm. it was really good stuff. So, yeah, he's uh, he's an odd one because uh, the only other one I can think of off the top of my head like that is, like, say, Carmine Infantino. I love his stuff, uh, you know, his work on some stuff, and then, you know, uh, you take a di- completely different title, and I just look at it and go, God, this is terrible, so <laughs> it's weird. I've never been a Carmine Infantino fan, but I have to, t- I had to take a step back on him, uh, was it two weeks ago, we went to the uh, Mike Carbo comic show, me and my son, mm-hmm. and Carmine Infantino was there, and I, I didn't personally speak to him, but I saw him, as we walked through, I saw him at least three times talking to different fans. And he was being such a nice guy to everybody that came across that I, I almost feel guilty now for not liking his art. I've always heard that he was really good with the fans. I'm, I'm, uh, I just learned not long ago that he's coming here to to Florida. He's uh, there's some comic show coming up. I think it's in Miami, sometime in like June or July. And uh, I, I have to just pretend I never heard about it because I want to go so bad <laughs> just because he's going to be there. But I, I know that there's just, there's just no way I can do that right now because I'm, you know, I just went to MegaCon not long ago and I'm trying to you know watch spending so I can save up for uh, for Star Wars celebration. So I really do not need to be running off to Miami. But uh, man, I want to go so bad because I know he's getting up there in age. And you know, if I don't ever see him, I know I'll end up regretting it because uh, you know there's a uh, there's definitely some issues of uh, Star Wars. I'd love to get signed by him, but uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, it, it's it's weird. You know, he's just one of those artists where you know something like Star Wars. You know, because you know it was just it was in my wheelhouse as a kid. You know, I I, I loved his work on that, and then I look at something like uh, his Flash stuff and just can't stand it. So it's it's a strange dichotomy. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a few artists that I would say similar things. You know, that there's certain issues I love and certain issues I hate, and you know, Carmine Infantino, I just never really saw the allure of his artwork. But, uh, again, he was such a nice guy to, to those people that, you know, I, I just had, I did a 180 on him. And uh, just a, just as an interesting side bit there, uh, you know, as we were walking through, uh, I saw Jim Steranko, who, you know, did some spectacular stuff back in the late 60s and early 70s. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, for whatever reason, I, I thought, you know, let me take a picture. And uh, I had read something, you know, one of the frequently asked questions things, and they said, you know, can you take a picture of anybody? And the answer was, well, you know, to be polite, some people don't want to have their pictures taken, you should ask. Which normally I would have just taken a picture without thinking about it, except that I had read that. So I pulled out the camera and I said, is it okay if I take a picture? And he jumped down my throat. <laughs> it was like, no. And he had like a handler with him who, who started like coming around the table. He was like, put the camera away. And Jesus, I, but but I to to reel it in. I think immediately Steranko realized, hey, the guy was asking. He wasn't being rude and just taking a picture. He was asking, because then he just very calmly looked at me and said, "I'd rather you didn't, but thank you very much for asking." So hmm. I thought, you know, I thought it was cool. Once he caught himself, I get the feeling what happened before I got there is that people just kept coming and taking pictures and were annoying him. Right, yeah. So so their first reaction was to overreact a little bit, but once he had a chance to think about it, he said, you know, 
he backed off it a little bit and was was polite. So it was it was an interesting moment, I thought. Hmm. Yeah, I don't I don't know what my reaction would be to something like that. That seems very uh I don't know. It's like get over yourself, dude, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, you know what <laughs> I, I you know, I, I, I kind of feel like that too, like, you know, somebody wants to take a picture, you you know, you 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 have whatever level of fame that you have, you know, let the guy take a picture. But yeah, uh, exactly. You know, he didn't want it done and you know, I was trying to be polite by asking and you know, like I said, once he responded politely, it didn't bother me at all. It was it was the initial overreaction that was like, whoa, <laughs> the hell's going on here? Right. <laughs> well, screw you too, pal. <laughs> there, there were there was some some people there. I mean, they had a uh, Butch Patrick, Eddie Munster was there. Nah. Uh, <laughs> nobody was coming by his table. It was kind of sad. <laughs> uh, Yancey Butler, she was in. Uh, the TV version of Witchblade. Oh, uh, and she's okay. been in a few other things, and she—I I gotta say—she's probably better looking in person than she is on TV. She looked terrific. <laughs> uh, How old is Eddie, Eddie Munster now? He's got to be what, like eighty or something? Nah, nah. Um, he's got to be in his fifties. Oh, really? Just as, well, yeah. yeah I, okay, I guess. That well, you be... figure the show was on around sixty-five, and he was probably twelve then. See, I thought that show was older than that. I, th- I was thinking that that was in the 50s, but yeah, I guess you're right. I guess that was the early 60s, early to mid-60s. So he's, he's probably late 50s, maybe even 60. Hmm. And then, uh, you know, just really a, a very pleasant thing. We went over and we took a picture with uh, Henry Winkler. I saw that. Yeah, I saw that on Facebook. That was awesome. What was, was cool is I called nice my, my wife and kid. Well, I called my wife into the room to see that picture on Facebook and my kids just happened to wander in with him. And I was like, oh, look, isn't that awesome? He's got a picture with the Fonz. And both my kids simultaneously looked at me and go, who? And I felt like 100 <laughs> years old. And I was like, Jesus, my kids don't know who the Fonz is. What is wrong with this world? What are they teaching in the public schools that kids don't know who the Fonz is? <laughs> yeah, my son didn't know who he was either, but he knew that I was a fan. But we, you know, we approached him, and I mentioned you know, that I was a big fan. And he was like, oh, you know, he, was, he was so grateful. He kept saying, you know, thank you so much. I mentioned to him how I was watching Arrested Development, that he had a funny part on that. He was like, oh, that's so nice of you. Thank you. Uh, he, he started talking to my son. He was asking me you know, how old he is and what he does in school and things like that. And uh, then when we were leaving, he, you know, he was telling us what a pleasure it was for him. So just, just an overall great experience. If I ever met him, I'd totally want to blow his mind by mentioning the uh, American Christmas Carol where he played mm-hmm. Scrooge because I loved that when I was a kid. The part toward the end of that where he sees his grave, you know, the ghost of Christmas future takes him to the future and he sees his own grave and mm-hmm. he breaks down is probably the most emotional enactment of that i've ever seen in any of the you know zillions of versions that there are of a christmas carol and you know all the different you know tv adaptations and everything that was the most powerful one to me because he completely loses it and i loved it he he really did a great job with that i thought that was a really good show and i wonder if anybody's ever talked to him about it at a convention or something you know i'm sure everybody always wants to talk about the fonds you know I was kicking myself for not talking to him about Night Shift, which is one of my favorite movies. Has that got Michael Keaton in it? Yes. I haven't yeah, seen that movie in years. 
it's been a long time since I saw it also, but it's just a funny movie. And, and you know, he's basically the uh, the straight man in it. Uh, but it's it's that movie cracks me up. And and how I forgot to mention that is just beyond me. That's a isn't that a Ron Howard movie where they set up like a they they become like pimps in a morgue or something like that. <laughs> That's exactly it. They're, yeah. the, they're, the, Jesus, they're the night workers in a morgue, <laughs> and uh, Henry Winkler lives in an apartment across the hall from Shelley Duvall, who's not Shelley Duvall, uh, the one from Cheers, Shelley. Uh, Shelley Long. Shelley Long. She and she's a prostitute. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and somehow they end up, you know, uh, the the her pimp gets killed or something, and there's nobody to protect them. And Michael Keaton suggests that they take over. And Henry Winkler is a whiz with money, so he takes the money and invests it for them, and you know, makes them all rich. Uh, but just, I mean, Michael Keaton is really the comic you know, the comic in the movie. Like I said, Henry Winkler is the straight man. But even as a straight man, he's funny in it. My biggest memory of that movie is when Ron Howard was on Saturday Night Live and Eddie Murphy was asking him about the movie. And he says, wait a minute. He goes, you got a movie about pimps and there's a couple of white guys and there's no black people in it? He goes, dude, I don't know whether to shake your hand or punch you in the mouth. I thought that was very funny. (laughs) I remember that. I, I remember he came out and Eddie Murphy's just looking at him like smiling and shaking his head saying, little Opie Cunningham. Yeah. He ends up running him off too. I thought that was great. Well, we are completely off on a crazy tangent. Um, I'm going to wrap this one up <clears throat> before my voice gives out on me. I've had to multiply, multiple times here uh, keep muting myself because, man, I... I don't know what's going on with my throat. I don't know if I'm coming down with the laryngitis or what, but my throat's killing me. But uh, I brought a comic to the table this time, and uh, I'm not sure who to blame for this. I was going to blame Michael Bailey because he kind of put the bug in my ear, uh, no pun intended on this one. Um, but also, I'm a huge Mike Parabek fan, so even if uh, Michael Bailey hadn't pointed this out to me, I probably would have ended up picking it up eventually. Anyway, this is... Impact Comics, this is The Fly, number one, from August 1991. Beautiful, beautiful art in this by uh, the uh, late uh, Mike Parabek, who, man, I miss this dude so much. He went he went well before his time, and uh, I really, really enjoy the art in this. Let's see, who is the... Oh, yeah, the writer was uh, Len... Uh, I'm never sure how to pronounce this guy's name. I think it's Trzuski. And if I'm not mistaken, I should have done my homework on this. I, I'm pretty sure that these are the same two guys that would get back together later on and do um, Justice Society of America, which didn't last very long, unfortunately. I think that only ran like 10 issues or something like that. I'm not sure if that was before this or after. I'm pretty sure that's after um, this particular book. But anyway, let's see here. we got Len Straczewski is the writer, Mike Paraback penciler we got uh, Paul Frick is the inker. And that's as far as I'm going to go on the credits on this. Quick and dirty synopsis on this is we start off uh, right at the beginning of the story. And we got this young guy, and his name is uh, Jason Troy, is the character that we follow in this. And he's a young high school kid. Looks a lot like uh, like Jason Todd to me. Or uh, not, not Jason Todd, um, the other one. Ah, crap, I can't think of his name. The other Robin, <laughs> completely. Oh, Jason, uh, no, not Jason. Um, uh, 
<laughs> Damn it, what's his name? I've completely blanked. Anyway, and he's sitting in, in, in school, in class, and he's playing his, uh, it's supposed to be like a Game Boy, it's called an Action Master Game Daddio, which I thought was very funny. He's got Tim his Drake. headphones. Tim Drake, that's it, that's it. <laughs> Sorry Thank to interrupt you. you but no, no, I was hoping that you were going to jump in there, because I was, I was dying here. <laughs> I was drowning. That was it, Tim Drake. He looks totally like Tim Drake, but with blonde hair. And he gets busted by this dude that looks like a cross between Santa Claus and Burl Ives. And he's the the teacher. And he has been going on and on about uh, the the assignment for the class is they're they're doing a study on heroes and heroism and what makes a hero and you know who are the classic characters of you know the the hero myth you know like Gilgamesh and uh, King Arthur Tarzan that sort of thing. And of course, uh, Jason is totally zoning out. He's playing his game. He gets busted, and this guy's name is, uh, I think it was Abin, like Mr. Abin or something like that. At the end of the story, it's going to be revealed that this guy was supposed to be like Middle Eastern or something. Totally doesn't look like that at all. I mean, he literally does look like either Santa Claus or, or Burl Ives. I don't know where they got the Middle Eastern thing from. I don't know if it's a coloring issue or... Or somebody just didn't get a memo or what. Anyway, Mr. Abin challenges uh, Jason, you know, because he, he caught him not paying attention. And Jason basically says, you know, look, dude, you know, I appreciate what you're saying, but, uh, you know, all this stuff's really boring. Nobody cares about all these old, you know, characters and st- uh, stories and stuff. He goes, we, we need a contemporary hero. And so Mr. Abin challenges him to come up with a hero. All right, well, you don't like the, the modern heroes, you don't like the older heroes, you come up with a hero then. You invent one, and you you tell me what your idea of a hero is. So Jason goes home, kicks his hot mom off the computer. She is drawn very, very attractively here. I love on the, there's a page, page five, third panel, where uh, he comes in mm-hmm. and his, his mom's working on the computer, and uh, she's just beautifully drawn. He gets on the computer. It looks inappropriate for that. Yeah, yes, yes, it does. Look. It really does. And <laughs> so she comes in the next morning, and he's stayed up all night working on his new character, and he's come up with a character called the Flyster, which is one goofy name. He goes to school the next day, and he presents the Flyster to uh, Mr. Abin. Mr. Abin's looking it over, thinking it's very interesting and everything, and uh, says that an element of the Flyster's uniform uh, reminds him of something. And so he pulls out this, I guess you would call it like an amulet. And the amulet is actually a piece of amber. And in the amber is a fly that's been trapped, you know, probably millions of years ago. And he gives it to Jason to wear. And he has it around his neck and schools out. So Jason goes off and uh, there's a, there was a little subplot in here, the, the villain thing, which didn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. This would probably be something that would pan out later on. Something about this guy that owes the supervillain money and didn't pay him back, so the supervillain's going to take it out on the guy by torching the the mall that the guy used the money to, to build or whatever. Jason, of course, just so happens to be headed to the mall on his day off from school, goes to the mall, the mall's engulfed in flames, and Jason finds himself thinking that he re- wishes that he really were this fly character that he created so that he could go help people. And of course, lo and behold, the magic amulet or whatever it is transforms him into his character, the fly. And that's, 
That's literally how he becomes the fly. And he goes in and he's saving lives and he battles the villain who... This guy reminds me of somebody I was trying to remember who it was he reminded me of. And I I just can't put my finger on it. He kind of reminds me of a character. I think he was a Blue Beetle villain. But I I can't remember. He's got a very similar design, though. But uh, he's basically Firebug, but without wings. And the guy's just walking around just torching different parts of the mall and setting it on fire. And there's a long, protracted battle with the fly. And at the end of the day, the fly wins, and he, uh, you know, saves the day and everything. Delivers the uh, the villain to the police, and then he basically wishes himself back into being Jason Troy. And his last thought, as he does this toward the end of the story, is, "I'm back, Mr. Abin. You and me have got to have a talk." But when he goes back to school the next day, it's a completely different teacher, and the new friend that he had made at school doesn't know who he's talking about when he says what happened to Mr. Abin. And he even describes what Mr. Abin looked like, and this kid just doesn't know who he's talking about. So we're left with a bit of a mystery. Who is this Mr. Abin guy? Why doesn't anybody remember him? And the story wraps up with uh, Jason getting his report back, and he got an A on it with a message from Mr. Abin that says, uh, we've waited a long time for you. And... uh, it was an interesting issue. It um, It's very... You know what it really feels like to me? And I, I, of course, I, I, the art has a lot to do with this. But it really feels to me like an issue of something like Batman Adventures. Because mm-hmm. it, it's in a very simple, kiddie style. It, it's not very deep or involved. But, you know, I don't necessarily say that as a criticism either. It's a lot of fun. And there's something to be said for for this type of comic that's just, you know, you can pick it up. It's really simple. It's a quick read. And it's just, you know, it's good, clean fun. Um, I do think it's more aimed for kids. But, again, you know, it it was an interesting issue. I'm kind of curious to see where it goes from here because it definitely needs an explanation. Him just simply wishing himself into his hero was a little too simple of an origin story for my taste. But, uh not a not a bad little book. Um, the biggest thing I took away from it, though, is just the art. The art is fantastic. For whatever the story may have lacked in depth or complexity, the art was fantastic. I got a real Shazam vibe from it, as far as the you know, yeah, story. I I never even yeah. You know what? Now that you say that, it's like duh. Yeah, why didn't I think of that? But yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah, he's he's got kind of the. In Mr. Abin, you've got kind of the, the wizard character and uh, you know the magic amulets, kind of like the magic... Yeah, I, I totally see that now that you say it. I can't believe I didn't put that together before. And the other thing, you know, you mentioned the artwork, and it's funny because when I first looked at it, I thought the art was okay. And then I started looking at it more closely, and I started looking at it the way you are, and I started appreciating it more and more. Uh, if you look at page 17... That looks like they totally channeled Steve Ditko to draw that. 17, let's see, one second, let me flip there. Yes, yes, very much so. That's, I mean, that, that looks like it's right out of, you know, early Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. You know, his, his style from that, or when he drew the Creeper and, you know, that kind of thing, uh, which is good Ditko. Uh, I, I have some issues with Ditko later in his career, not because I thought he was doing things badly, but because it seemed to me like nobody was willing to actually 
ink him. Uh, all they were doing was just darkening his pencils. Uh, so so it, it, it almost like became too overly simplistic in the way it, that things were drawn. You know, it's Whereas funny. This, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm no, sorry. But, but when I look at this page, this, this looks like what Ditko, you know, was when he was doing his really good work, as opposed to later on in his career, like I said, when it seemed like everybody was afraid to, you know, exert any influence over it. See, I'm really glad to hear you say that because I, I'm always afraid to say much of anything about Ditko because his his fan base, I mean, they're rabid, you know what I mean? And and mm-hmm. saying anything the least bit negative, you know, you're just inviting, you know, really, uh, you know, a lot of, of, of people lashing back at you about it. But I, I kind of have the same reaction to Ditko you know, it's like what we were talking about before with, uh, you know, you look at some work by an artist and just love it, and then you look at other stuff and you're just like, ugh. Ditko's a, he's probably, actually, probably the best example of that. I love Ditko's Spider-Man. I mean, he defined that character, and he's still, you know, that high watermark that everybody else is judged against when they handle that character. That said, I've never liked anything else i've seen from ditko i mean i'm not a dr strange fan to begin with but you know i look at his dr strange i look at his starman stuff uh he had some work on the hulk and different things Mm -hmm. um you know over on star wars monthly monday uh chris honeywell and i are going to be uh well we are now covering um the further adventures of indiana jones eventually late in the series of that book ditko worked on that did he really? Oh, uh, yeah, and I'm not looking forward to that stuff because it's not very good. You know, I, I got to be honest. So I it, think, it, it's, I think uh, Mike Bailey was the first one who pointed out that he was just wrong, or the first one I know of that pointed it out that he was just the wrong artist to put on the Hulk. Period. Mm-hmm. And and I hadn't realized it until after I heard Mike talking about it, and then I was looking at some of those early to- Tales to Astonish issues, and I have to agree, it's not that the artwork was bad; it was just a bad match for the Hulk. Right, but I, I like his Doctor Strange stuff. To me, that that's some real good Ditko stuff. I had never read uh, a great number of the Strange Tales issues. Uh, you know, I read the Origin issue and a couple of others, but I hadn't read most of them. Uh, and last year, I just picked up the uh, Masterworks and I started going through it. And I've read the entire Strange Tales run, which uh, Ditko's run wasn't was maybe half of that. And then it went on to other artists, but uh, so did you? I, I really does think that he did cover a great like job. the like the Human Torch stuff and all that too, or is it strictly Doctor Strange? The Masterworks is just Doctor Strange. Oh, okay. uh, but yeah, the Human Torch stuff. <laughs> if you read some of the Human Torch stuff, that gets incredibly campy and silly. That that almost has a Batman Adventures vibe to it. I picked uh, up the uh, the essentials of that for a song, and was so excited at, at the time that I picked that up. And I don't know why, but I've never even cracked the cover on it. One of these days I need to read it, but uh, I was excited to get it at the time, and now I can't remember. Oh, I know what it was. I I, I had an issue of uh, Strange Ad- – uh, was it Adventures or Tales? Strange Tales. Tales, that was it. I had an issue of that fall in my lap, and it was the one where he and Iceman meet for the first time. Oh, so that's pretty early on. I loved it. I, I mean, I got it for, I want to say like a buck or something. Oh, it's wow. in great shape. And I was just like, damn, I've never read this title before. This was really good stuff. And so then I wanted to seek out more of it. And of course, you know, those issues go for a lot of money. So I found the, uh, the essentials and bought that for, I want to say like two or three dollars. 
and uh, <laughs> I've still never read it. I don't know why. See, that, that, that's just a, that's the story of my collecting life, right there. Though, as I pick up these things, and I'm all excited about it, and then they just they go on the pile. You know what I mean? Right. Well, have <laughs> have you been listening to Andy Leyland do? Uh, I, I forget who his partner is on that, but he does the old Fantastic Four issues. I have not. I need to. I, I'm God. I'm I'm going to be so embarrassed when he listens to this because I I was actually dreading him asking me that question when we actually <laughs> met face to face recently. Are you listening to my fans? No, I'm not. And I need. So you're going to gonna edit this out? <laughs> no, no. I'll leave it in. I'll leave, I'll I'll have to face the I'll have to face the music on that. But uh, I need to. But see, my problem is for one, I'm not much of an FF fan to begin with. Um, for two, I really don't need any more podcasts to listen to and try to keep up with. It, I'm struggling as it is to catch up on all the other ones that I that I listen to on a on a regular basis. But uh, I do need to listen to it because Andy's one of those guys. I could listen to him talk about dishwater and I'd enjoy it. You know what I mean? I, I agree. He's just and a I, fantastic I podcaster. You. I blame you totally because I didn't know who Andy was until you started uh, talking about him, and then I started listening to hey kids comics and uh you know i mean it, it's just so entertaining i have to stay with it and i started listening to his fantastic four stuff uh now i am a fan of the fantastic four so i'm very familiar with the early issues but they're going through it month by month and now they've hit the point where strange tales issues are in there and they're going over those as well and uh it, you know it's just comical you know the human torch thinks he has a secret identity <laughs> but, but the reality is everybody knows who he is. Uh, so it, it's just, you know, it's a lot of silliness, uh, you know, Silver Age silliness. And uh, they, they point it out for what it is. So it's definitely worth a listen. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'll end up checking it out eventually. I'll have to eventually because uh, uh, I told him that when they get to my era of FF, which, of course, is the burn stuff that, uh, that I want in on at least some of those stories. Because I have always meant to cover that somehow somewhere on, on one of our myriad of, of podcasts, um, the burn FF, and we've just never made it to it, but I want to so badly. But now that someone's actually, you know, working their way toward that stuff, I'd feel kind of funny about that. So I don't know. It'll probably never happen now, but I'd at least like to guest on, you know, particular issues type of thing. You got a long ways to go before they get to that though. I mean, I think they're up to issue 12, maybe. And Byrne came in at like two thirty two. And yeah, I know. It's it's quite a stretch. So I don't you, know. You I, know. I might do it at some point well before they get there so that it'll all be forgotten and, you know, water under the bridge by the time they get to it. So I've I've always meant to. See, we started we had a segment a while back, um, we were doing the burn baby burn segment. But the mistake we made with that was that we started at what seemed like a logical place, which is his X-Men stuff, which is still probably the thing Burns most remembered for is his X-Men stuff. But see, for me, I just, I've never been a big fan of that stuff. I, I didn't personally discover Burn until FF. So for me, that's where Burn starts is FF. And that just, that's the stuff I'd really want most to talk about. And mm-hmm. so we were trying to work our way there, but I just, it became such a slog with the X-Men stuff that I eventually just kind of lost my enthusiasm for the segment, to be perfectly honest. But I was in early on Burn. I remember on Champions. Yeah. And, and on Iron Fist and on Marvel Team Up. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 I hitched onto that wagon from the very first time I started reading his books. So, I, I I was along for the ride on the X Men. I I don't know what my fascination with the X Men is because I've I've looked over some of the early issues 
and some of them are awful. Mm-hmm. But I, but I was hooked on the X Men before the new team was was created. They were, I, I started getting into the X Men while they were on the reprint run. Well, a lot of that stuff is Neil Adams. Uh, no, yeah, it is, and that's great, great stuff. But that isn't that I didn't get to that until later because that oh, stuff was okay. hard to find. So I, I got hooked on it. I don't know. Just I think it was the idea of the school and and more, more the concept than the execution. Right, right. But but I, I was hooked on the X Men, you know, pretty early when when I uh, like when I first started collecting when it was feasible to get an entire run of a series. You know, now now you look at it and it's just you know daunting. But back then, you know, you're only talking about getting a hundred and something issues. Right. Uh, and the three series I would tr- was trying to get at the time were Spider-Man, the X-Men, and Captain America. Those were the three I had set my sights on and I was trying to get the whole runs of. How'd you do? Well, with Spider-Man, I went back as far as issue 24. Damn. And I had a pretty, you know, there's a couple of little spots missing, but I had a pretty solid run from that point up. Uh, with Captain America... I wasn't, you know, I I went back, you know, into Tales of Suspense, but I have a lot of little gaps in that one. Uh, And with X-Men, my first issue is the issue with Kazar. No, yeah, which I think is issue 10. Wow. And I had a, you know, I, I, I eventually stopped in the 80s, but I think I have just about a solid run from issue 10 up to, you know, 200 and something. Holy shit! <laughs> That's impressive, dude. Well, you know, like I like I've talked about in the past, you know, some of that stuff at the time. I mean, even if you factor in inflation, you know, you're buying issues for four or five dollars. It's equivalent now of buying them for say twenty five dollars, right? But you're getting a you know a very early issue for that. So you know, inflation. Uh, the the prices have increased much much more than the inflation. Uh, would would lead you to. So I always so. liked that idea, you know, of going all the way back like that. But I, I never see my problem was I had the wrong characters because I always had in mind like Superman and Batman. There's, you know, even in the in the seventies and eighties, there's no way you're going all the way back to you know Action Number One or Detective yeah. Twenty Seven or there's, and plus, you know, beyond a certain point, each of those characters hits a particular era or incarnation where I just couldn't care less. So I went back, you know, as far as I could afford and as far as I was interested. So I, w- I, w- I was always more about complete runs as opposed to, you know, complete series. You know what I mean? I actually, mm-hmm. when it comes to like long lived titles, I, I really can't think of any that I, I have really like the entire thing. You know what I mean? I go, off the top of my head, Avengers is one of those ones where I go back quite a ways. Because from right around, I want to say like 100 or thereabouts, mm-hmm. I have like every issue, you know, all the way to the end of the series. I haven't ever read them, <laughs> all of them, but I need to. <laughs> uh, you know, again, there's, you know, that, that problem rears his ugly head. But, uh, but yeah, I always, you know, I always really, uh, I'm fascinated by people that, that, set that goal and then we're able to stick to it. Cause I have, you know, talked and talked to and met people that, you know, Spider-Man's a big one for a lot of people. I, I think Andy, um, now that I think about it, I think Andy was, was one of the people that was telling me that, uh, you know, he set that goal as a kid. And again, I'm not sure how far, how far back he made it. Well, you got to think uh, in the UK, it's probably harder to get the American issues yeah, too. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. 
but I, I, you know, if I had it to do over again, if I could go back to being, you know, a 12 year old kid doing this, uh, I would have set my sights on the earliest issues first and worked my way up to the more yeah. recent ones because the longer you wait, the more they just increase in price and the more difficult they get to obtain. So that, that was the mistake. And then, you know, I stopped in the mid eighties for a spell. And when I started buying again, I no longer had the, I need to get a complete run or I need to go back and fill these holes in my collection attitude. So once I stopped in the mid eighties, you know, everything's spotty after that. I think one of my biggest obstacles to that beyond just, you know, money and the availability of, of the comics, you know, pre-internet was that I have always been very eclectic you know, in, in my collecting and just in my interests, you know, like this week I might totally be on a, you know, a kick about, oh, you know, super, you know, Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, gotta, gotta read them all, gotta have them all. And then next week it's, you know, something completely different. So, you know, and, mm. and that's still reflected today, like with my eBay habits, you know, one week I'm, I'm on a kick, you know, one of these days I got to complete my run of Superman family. So, you know, I'm all about searching that and hunting those issues, and then you know, a, a week later, I'm I'm trying to fill in some completely different you know holes in a completely different collection. So, what ends up happening is I I never actually complete anything. I've just got you know spotty issues all over the place of all these different series. But that's fun in itself too, I guess. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it definitely was when I used to when I used to do that. Now I'm just content to you know read stories that I like, and I'm happy to pick them up and trade. I don't need to have original copies anymore because the concept of building up a collection that's going to get me rich one day is long since forgotten. Right, right. So now it's more along the lines of if I have the material to read, I don't care what form it's in. Exactly. Well, you know, there's something, too, that I, I found that it, it, it has really taken me back to my childhood, which ultimately I think is what all this ab is about when it comes to comics for me, is it's all about holding on to that that child, you know, that sense of being a child as, as, as much as possible and for as long as possible. That when I was a kid, it was very much catch as catch can when it came to comics, you know? You, you might pick up, you know, issue whatever of, you know, Superboy and love it and think it was awesome and it ends on a cliffhanger and then you know the the next month the the rack carries a completely different selection and you just never knew how that story resolved there's actually something you know both you know yes it's annoying but there's something <laughs> kind of cool about that too you know that that that's you know it's going to stay out there in limo cuz i don't know how many times in my adult collecting life i've reflected back on some story uh, you know I, I i never knew how Story X resolved. I got to go find that issue. I got to know what happened. And I'll go and I'll find it. And it's like, oh, well, that sucked. You know? <laughs> so there's actually something kind of cool to just kind of letting it ride. You know? That, that it mm. ended on a great cliffhanger and I'll just never know how it resolved. Uh, you know? <laughs> as, as strange as that sounds, I kind of actually like that. I, I like the, uh, the random, you know, going back to that random nature of how the old spinner racks used to be. I wonder how how many other older you know older fanboys had that same experience where you know their their spinner rack was just a complete shot in the dark you know week to week or month to month where they just never had the same you know regular titles all because 
I mean, it's weird. I, I look at some of my, like, uh, Superman's a perfect example. I look at some of my runs of Superman that are issues I know that I bought off the stands when I was a kid, and it's like every other issue. So mm. it's like they carried them on, like, a bi-monthly basis or something. It's like it was alternated month to month with, I guess, another title or something. I, I think that's pretty common. I've, I mean, I've heard a lot of people who voiced similar experiences I didn't have that so much. The store I had was pretty, you know, the, it was a you know cigar slash candy store, uh, but they pretty much got everything that came out every month. And uh, then we had, you know, we found a local used bookstore that carried comics, and, right. and we were setting out to get all the back issues from there. And on on the very rare occasion that there was an issue that got missed in the local store, we'd be able to find it, you know, a month later in the back issue bins. But what a you know what a pain in the ass. And it wasn't until relatively recently when I sat down and I was making a want list for some convention that I looked at this like three or four year stretch of, it was either Action or Superman, I forget, one of the two. And I looked at it and I go, what the hell, this is alternate issues for like a, I, I was pretty sure it was like a three year run. Alternating issues. And I, I, and I know I bought these off the stand, so <laughs> it's really weird. I just... You know, I, I wonder Do what you the have other any memory title. at the time of being aware that you were missing issues. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, but I didn't realize that, that that there was an actual pattern to it. I always mm -hmm. chalked it up to the fact that, you know, I only had a five dollar. Uh, it was either a week or a month. I forget. It must have been a week. I, I can't remember, but it was only a five dollar allowance, and we only made it into town. Uh, you know, into Watertown, which was the next, you know, quote unquote, big town over from us. And if you ever saw Watertown, you'd laugh at the concept of Watertown being a big town. But it was the only place I could get DCs because for the longest time where Chris Honeywell and I bought our comics was a local cigar shop and they only carried Marvels and Charlton's. They didn't carry DC comics for the longest time. So mm. in order to get my, my DC fix, we actually had to go into Watertown. So whenever I missed issues or was left on a cliffhanger, I just chalked it up to, well, you know, I just didn't make it in time. And it wasn't until later that I realized, no, I think I was making it there pretty regularly. They, they just weren't carrying, the, you know, every issue every month. They were somehow they were alternating with, I, I guess, other titles or something. I, I don't know how that works because I, I look at other runs that I have or, you know, other titles that I have that were right at the same time that I was collecting, like, say, Batman or Detective Comics. I got all of those. So I didn't mm -hmm. miss anything with them. It had to do with Superman. It was alternating with some other title. Was Maybe Superman was alternating with action. I thought about that, but then my action run is complete, too. So I, I oh. don't know. It's Well, I, whichever one it is. You know, if if it's if it's action that's spotty, then Superman's complete or vice versa. You know what I mean? So it's, it's mm -hmm. weird, but... Uh, I don't know. It was just that was just the nature of of the old spinner racks back then, I guess. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I never well, thought I really. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Where I grew up, you know, we the the store that we went to was right around the corner from my house. So, you know, I was able to get there every week. And back then, the books used to come out on Tuesdays. Uh, tu Tuesdays was the big day, and then sometimes a couple of more issues would come out on Thursday. I don't really know the rhyme or reason to that. But it was it was more or less like special things that would come out on Thursday. Like the regular issues would all come on Tuesday. But if you had a treasury edition or a giant size issue, that might come on a Thursday. But I would be in the store basically the day they were coming out and pick out my book. So I 
rarely missed anything from them, and they were pretty good as far as what they stocked. I, I can't remember what days that uh, that they would get the comics as when I was a kid. <laughs> Seems like I wouldn't forget a thing like that, but I, I I really don't remember. I think part of it was that we just we haunted the place. You know what I mean? It's like every day after school, you know, you just you went there and hung out and read the comics and everything like that. They were actually, you know, looking back on it now, they were very tolerant of us just hanging around this cigar shop all the time. You'd think that they'd want to run school kids out, out of a place like that, you know, but they were actually very tolerant. Because I can remember just going and just plopping my ass down on the floor and just, you know, treating it like the library. You know, I'd toss your ass out of it. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I would too. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, back then, my, my the guy who owned the store around the corner from us was really great because I was in there all the time to get my stuff. So if uh, you know, if I hadn't gotten my allowance yet, which was five dollars a week at the time, and I'd walk in and I'd take three dollars worth of books, he would say, "Okay," and he'd make, take a pencil and walk down. You know, Paul, three dollars. And the next time I came in, I'd just give him the money. <laughs> so he he was you know really good about letting me take them, even if I didn't have the cash on me at the time. Oh, the good old days. You know, I never thought I'd miss those old spinner rack days, but uh but I do sometimes. There was there's I don't know. There was something fun and, and magical and, and you know, completely in retrospect, you know, about those those old spinner rack days. Well, there's something to be said for you know, I mean a cer- certain part of it is nostalgia, but this when they talk about like things being simpler in the good old days, I think usually that's just you know that your memory seems that way, right? I think as far as comic books go, it was simpler because you had less titles. It was it it just wasn't quite the business that it is now, right? And and I think there was a certain just uh, accessibility that you no longer have, and I, I think that's part of the reason why you know <laughs> why the the comics fans are you know forty something year old people instead of twelve year old people. Mm-hmm. That's very true. That's very true. I I just I simply miss the days where you could go to you know the local you know convenience store or whatever, and you know with five bucks on your pocket, you could know everything that was going on in definitely at least one of the universes, probably both of them for five bucks. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean you could you could get every decent Marvel and DC that was on the racks and pretty much know what's going on. And uh I those are the days that I miss the most. You know, you could really go and just get everything that you were interested in. And you know, and even risk, you know, twenty five cents on something that, you know, was was new and just catches your eye, you know, rather than going, eh, you know, maybe I'll catch that later in the fifty cent bin because it just, you know, I don't want to risk four bucks on it or whatever. But uh, yeah, if if it turned out, you know, if if you were taking stuff that was hit and miss and you got the occasional miss, you know, it didn't really bother you because you didn't have as much invested into it. Definitely, definitely. Well. This has been a lot of fun. I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap us up right here. Uh, I'm not sure what our what our frequency on these episodes is, but uh, we will definitely get some more uh, some more content put out because this was a lot of fun. I miss the uh, the old school back to the bins episodes. So we will definitely be uh, churning out some new ones here in the uh, hopefully near future. <clears throat> I need to uh, wrap us up though because my voice is about to give out on me. So. Well, I'm definitely up for, uh, you know, for doing more. Uh, I don't want to do so at the exclusion of Mike. So, 
anytime he's available, if, you know, if if I'm welcome to be with the two of you and we could do a three man crew, I would love to do that too. Absolutely, absolutely. I want to get Mike back in on this as well. Absolutely. Well, thanks for joining me, Paul, and uh, and we will get together and uh, and knock out another one very soon. Well, it's been my pleasure, and I look forward to the next time. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and is a registered trademark of DiManzocore of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. 